The title of this morning's message is The Book of Hebrews Doesn't Have to Be Scary. <laughs> this morning we're going to look at some scriptures found in Hebrew that can sound kind of scary to a believer if we don't know how to read them. And the best way to read and correctly understand scripture is to first put it in its historical context and then apply audience relevance. The relevant audience was the Hebrews, the saved Hebrews in particular, but all Hebrews who were alive at the end of what was called the last days. Those particular last days were the years just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author specifically refers to this relevant time period in verse 2. I have it for you in the ESV, beginning with verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. These last days, the last days referenced right here, are the same last days that Jesus prophesied about in Matthew 24. I have that for you in ESV, beginning with verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They were glorious. <laughs> they actually had glittered with gold. It was spectacular. And the disciples said, look at these glorious things here, right, Jesus? And Jesus answers them and said, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And the King James uses the word world which is a really bad translation because he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the age. The disciples knew from prophecy that the Messiah would set up a new messianic age where he would rule as king of Israel and that one of the signs that that would be happening was the destruction of the second temple. Exactly like Jesus had foretold to them. And all of Jerusalem, all of it, <laughs> would be completely desolate in 40 years. The original prophecy for this is actually found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. I have it for you in the Amplified Version, just because it does a really good job of explaining itself. <laughs> the context of these verses is that Daniel had been reading the, the book of Jeremiah and asking God, according to the prophecies of Jeremiah, when is the temple going to be rebuilt? Now, the first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So he's like, now you said, <laughs> when is this going to be rebuilt? It's supposed to be within a specific amount of time. So in answer to Daniel's prayer, God sends the angel Gabriel. Gabriel does more than just answer his questions. He gives them a lot more information than he probably knew what to do with. <laughs> Beginning in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26 in the Amplified. Seventy weeks of years, or 490 years, have been decreed for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make atonement or reconciliation for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, right standing with God, 
and to seal up or to bring to completion the vision, the prophecy, and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place in heaven. <laughs> so you are to know and understand that from the issuance of the command from King Cyrus to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, the prince, there will be seven weeks of years, 49 years, and 62 weeks of years, 434 years, it will be built again with a city plaza and a moat, even in times of trouble. And it came to pass just exactly like it was prophesied. The temple was rebuilt within 49 years. <laughs> and then it was 434 years before the Messiah would come. Then after 62 weeks of years, the anointed one will be cut off, killed but not for himself, and denied his messianic kingdom by the Jews and will have nothing and no one to defend him. And the people of the other prince, that would be the Roman general, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. None of this has anything to do with us. <laughs> this is good to know. <laughs> this has already taken place, just exactly like it was foretold. It was 49 years and the temple was rebuilt, and it was 400 and some odd years before Jesus showed up on the scene. That's why there were so many false messiahs during the 40 years between the cross and the destruction. Because they knew, all of the Jews knew, Messiah has to be here now. They knew it because they had counted the years. <laughs> so Jesus wasn't actually telling his disciples something they had never heard before. Israel's leaders had been counting the years. They knew when Messiah was supposed to show up, and that's why they knew to expect him. They just didn't understand what the Messiah would actually accomplish. So the disciples just wanted to know how and when Jesus would be exalted as the king of Israel, because they're saying, hey, the kingdom's coming, right? We're going to sit on his left and right, and we're going to rule and reign. They weren't thinking spiritual. They were thinking physical. So they knew in this prophecy the temple has to be destroyed. <laughs> so they said, when is this happening? But again, they didn't understand exactly what it meant that the kingdom was coming. Some scholars think that disciples interpreted what Jesus had said to them as his plans as the new king of Israel, that he would tear down all the old buildings and all the old stuff and rebuild it bigger and better. <laughs> Why? Because they're thinking physical. And if you are the true king of Israel and you're going to rule the whole world, then hey, <laughs> you need a pretty fancy house for that. <laughs> but Jesus does answer their question. The destruction of the temple would take place within one generation, which was 40 years. And we can see this in Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is still tender and puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. So you, you Jews, likewise, when you see all these things, you shall know that the end is near at the doors. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Forty years, they're going to see all the things that Jesus prophesied about take place. Verse 35. The heaven and earth will shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth is Jewish code for temple. 
<laughs> the temple's going to pass away. <laughs> so Jesus told them that absolutely everything, all the scary stuff you see in chapter 24, would happen within the following 40 years. And the book of Hebrews is thought to have been written somewhere between 35 and 38 years. So anywhere from two to five years remaining before they knew what was coming. Everything's going to be destroyed which is why the author of Hebrews brings up the subject of the last days. <laughs> it was at that time in history that the la this was the last of the last days. And both the unsaved Jews and the Roman government were murderously hostile to Christians. The apostle Peter is believed to have been crucified in Rome about 65 AD. And the apostle Paul is believed to have been beheaded shortly before the emperor Nero blamed Christians for a fire in 64 AD. That fire destroyed approximately three-fourths of the city of Rome. It is also conjectured that Nero started the fire himself. Why? Because he wanted it to be all turned down so he can rebuild it in a bigger and better way <laughs> and glorify himself. <laughs> the exact opposite of what Jesus would do. <laughs> so in the process of all of this, he also took the opportunity to get rid of all those pesky Christians. Christians were illegal. They were illegals. <laughs> Nero is known to have used Christians as human torches. Nero is known to have used Christians for entertainment by throwing them into arenas with wild animals and watching them be killed. He had many Christians crucified as traitors to the empire. And he also had many Christians beheaded because they simply refused to worship him as God. Both Jews and Christians affectionately gave him the name the Beast. Archaeologists have found newspapers <laughs> talking about this really nasty beast. <laughs> His name was Nero. Nero also decided to make life even harder for the Christians, because they're illegal, by refusing them, or anyone else for that matter, to buy and sell in the open markets. Unless they first paid a monetary offering as an act of worship, and then they would have to bow in worship to a statue of Nero as God. <laughs> and then when that was done, the person would receive ashes applied to either their forehead or their hand, which showed everybody in the market, all of the soldiers, that you had a right to be there. You had the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand. And that's the only way they could get into the markets to buy food. And of course, Christians wouldn't do it. <laughs> they would not receive what they called the mark of the beast. So Christians had to rely on the mercies, the mercy of others in order to get food. But the Jews, however, they were exempt from this requirement as long as they compromised and made offerings on behalf of the emperor. It was a little workaround. We're not going to worship you as God. You already know that. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll pray to our God for you. <laughs> In fact, scholars believe that it was the unsaved Jews who began to have mercy on the Christians because even the Jews considered him to be a beast. And they thought it was starving the people was not right. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, do we really need to know all of this in order to understand the book of Hebrews? 
And the answer is absolutely yes. <laughs> because the author of Hebrews understood why many of the Jewish Christians were thinking of going back into Judaism. It was dangerous to live in Jerusalem and be a Christian. And it looked like a perfectly good way of saving their lives and the lives of their families. So they figured they could just hide themselves within the Jewish community until the Lord returned because they knew he was coming back. But they thought he was coming back physically, not in judgment. Much of the early church was looking for the earthly setup of God's kingdom at the fall of Jerusalem. And since they had been counting the years, they knew it would be within that 40-year window. So time was running out, and people were desperately looking for a way to save their lives. Jesus had also told his followers that there was a great escape available to those who believed in him, him and his work. He had told them exactly what they needed to do to escape this judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. They knew everything was going to be destroyed. It was just a matter of time. <laughs> so he told them what to do. We can see that in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. But when you, not us, them, when you Jews here, alive right now, <laughs> see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter in. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. The days of God's vengeance was to be poured out on the entire Old Covenant system and all those who stubbornly held to it and refused to believe on Jesus as the Christ. None of the Jews needed to go into that judgment. They could have all have been saved <laughs> if they would only have believed on Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews is not only trying to prove the true identity of Christ and the efficacy of his sacrifice and priesthood, but he's also trying to encourage his readers to continue to be faithful to Christ and patiently wait for the salvation that Jesus said would come. The word salvation is a big word, and I used it on purpose. Most of the time when we think salvation, we think the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and that's all. <laughs> but the forgiveness of sins is just the beginning of what our salvation holds. If you look at the word salvation in the Strong's Concordance, you'll see this. It's a noun, and it means to be rescued or have safety. Rescue or safety, either physically or morally. And it's translated as deliver, help, salvation, saving, and save. It has everything to do with the word sozo. I love the word sozo. <laughs> According to the Strong's Concordance, the word sozo means safe. To save means to deliver or protect, literally or figuratively. Translated as heal, preserve, save, do well, be or make whole. So our salvation contains the healing, preserving, protecting, providing, forgiving, and making whole power of God. Salvation is big. <laughs> our salvation includes everything we need for life and godliness. But that doesn't mean that we automatically manifest everything we have in Christ into our lives. And that's because all that our Father has already provided to us by his grace, both for the physical life and our spiritual life, is only manifested through faith in God's word to us. We are saved by grace through faith. 
saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole, given to us as a gift of God's grace. But it's only apprehended, it's only made manifest in our lives through faith. For instance, most of the church doesn't even know <laughs> that Jesus has provided us with everlasting righteousness. That was prophesied in Daniel. Not temporary righteousness, which is what most of the church thinks they have. Everlasting righteousness. And not when we get to heaven. <laughs> that's a done deal. That's a, that's a given. We have everlasting righteousness right now. As born-again believers, we have right standing with God as a gift forever. In spite, yes, in spite of our sins and failures. And that's because our right standing is based on Jesus' behavior and Jesus' sinless life and Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Our salvation is based entirely on Jesus, not on us. <laughs> but most of the church still believes that their righteousness and their right standing with God comes and goes based on their own behavior, their own sins and their own sacrifices. So in spite of the fact that Jesus has actually made them righteous with an everlasting righteousness, they still live in guilt, and shame, and condemnation because they do not understand what is actually theirs. Their salvation is an everlasting salvation, but they don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't believe it, they don't experience it. Because we have it all, but it's faith that causes it to manifest. So they don't actually ever get to enter into what experientially, what is actually theirs. If I don't believe, I am forever saved. If I have an everlasting right standing with God apart from my works, then I will act like it's not true. I will live like it's not true. And that's what most of the church is doing. They think if they fail, God is mad. And now they have to do some kind of penance to make up for the thing that they did wrong so God can receive them back. I spent a lot of years doing that. Most of the church spends a lot of years doing that. And when you spend a lot of years doing that, guess what you're not doing? Living in what God has for you. What God has for us is available for us if we believe and trust him. So I think the author of Hebrews is trying to make the point that you're not apprehending everything God has for you. You have to have faith. You have to believe his word. Don't go trying to provide for your own safety when Jesus has already given you a word about that safety. When we understand our everlasting righteousness, we can stop being afraid of losing our salvation. Losing God's approval. It's a forever approval. <laughs> now, can God disapprove of what we do? Sure. Does that change anything with us? No. He's going to say, hey, that's not working out for you. Let's try this differently. <laughs> I have something better for you. I have a better way for you. That's what the author of Hebrews is going to be doing. It's trying to convince his readers God's way is best. God is always right. Now, our everlasting righteousness will not automatically prevent us from sometimes doing stupid stuff. <laughs> this is good to know. <laughs> 
But our stupid stuff cannot change our everlasting righteousness. It will, however, change and often wreck the good stuff in our lives. Sin is always a bad idea. Just because we have a forever righteousness doesn't mean God wants us living according to our flesh head, according to the way the world does. That's the way you get killed, <laughs> especially for these Hebrews. <laughs> so if the Jewish Christians were to go back into Judaism as a way of trying to save their lives, or because they weren't actually sure that faith in Jesus was enough, <laughs> and they would actually go back to the old ways, they would actually be jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Never knowing that you're better off in the frying pan with Jesus <laughs> than you are in the fire with everybody else. <laughs> the temple was burned to the ground. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. They would literally have been stepping back into the fire. No one back then knew exactly when the judgment was going to come. They knew it would be before the end of the 40 years, but they did not know that God in his grace waits as long as possible. <laughs> so they should have expected, you know, right at the 40th year mark. <laughs> so anyway, as far as they understood, it could be any time during that 40-year period. And it could have been at 38 years and six months. They had no way of knowing when this deliverance was coming. So they had to keep enduring. They had to keep believing. And it's only hindsight that lets us know that there were as much as five years or as little as two years. See, if you knew it was only going to be two more years, you might go, I can still do this. <laughs> but if I said, no, five more years, you might go, no, I'm going back into Judaism. <laughs> that's easier. <laughs> so that's the historical context of what the writer is trying to address. That was the world back then for these Hebrews. So we're going to look at the first four verses of chapter 2. In chapter 2, in verse 1, it says this. This is in King James. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. When the sentence begins with therefore, it means, go look at what I just said, what came before, because it's based on that that I'm saying this. <laughs> so what he's saying is in chapter 1, the author explained the true identity of Jesus as Messiah, and as the Son of God, who is also the creator and king of the world. He's the one who has purged our sins and has sat down at the right hand of the Father, and the one who has obtained a more excellent name than any and all that ever came before him. So he says, in light of that, <laughs> I'm going to say this. <laughs> now, what I want you to see here is the word we is not we. This is not written to us. This was written to them. This is the biggest mistake Christians make, is when they read a scripture, they're reading somebody else's mail. If I get my neighbor's mail, and there's a million dollar check in it, am I really going to be happy? No, because it's not mine. <laughs> this is somebody else's mail. It's written for our learning. But it's not written to us. So, therefore, we, the Jews alive at that time, and the word ought actually means it is necessary. <laughs> I love this. Ought, it's one of those words that sound like, just do what I say. 
but what he's trying to say is, it is of the utmost necessity for you that we should give more earnest heed to the things we have heard. And that's because the things they had heard were truth. They were grace. It was the new covenant. And that's the thing about grace. When you first come into the understanding of it, it can be kind of slippery. <laughs> that's why it takes you to hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. When I first began to understand about this gift of everlasting righteousness, I would see it by the Spirit. I would believe it by the Spirit. I would take it by the Spirit. And then a few days later, <laughs> my brain would come up with all kinds of questions and doubts. And I had to go back to the Lord, show me again. I found the scary scripture of Jesus, show me again. And he would show me again. And again. And again. Because there's a lot of scriptures that look kind of scary if you don't know how to read them. <laughs> but he is faithful to always bring us back to the truth of grace, of who he is and what he has accomplished. It is by his grace and only by his grace that we have everlasting righteousness. And only as my heart was established in this truth could I begin to overcome all those religious doctrines, feeling guilty and shameful and condemned because I wasn't perfect. You can see the same truth in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 9, which says this. I'm being not carried about with diver and strange religious doctrines. Now, I landed the word religious <laughs> because that's what he's talking about. It is the previous things they had been taught that would pick them up out of their peace and out of their rest and drag them off into shame, guilt, and condemnation. <laughs> and I like that. Don't be carried away. Don't let these things grab you and drag you off into unrest. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. In other words, there were a lot of Christian Jews who were still keeping kosher, keeping the food regulations, because they thought if they didn't, God would be mad. They would be disqualified. They didn't understand they actually had an everlasting righteousness. I can understand their battle. The Jews didn't stop being Jewish <laughs> when they received Christ. Their whole life had been all about the law, all about keeping themselves right in God's sight. So they had a constant battle to let go of all that religious teaching. Things like the food regulations all in an effort to make sure that I myself keep myself right with God. But under the new covenant of grace, it is no longer necessary to keep the food regulations for righteousness. And they could if they wanted to, but if somebody slipped them some bacon, it was no big deal. <laughs> there was bacon in that salad. Oh, no. No. <laughs> And keeping those regulations did not benefit them in any way. In fact, this is the thing about law-keeping. It actually causes us to be self-righteous and prideful. <laughs> <laughs> 
because we begin to believe that we have something to do with keeping ourselves right. I did it right today, Jesus. If I did it right today, it's because of Jesus. <laughs> Not for Jesus, but because of Jesus. <laughs> so for both the Hebrews living back then and for us today, we do need to give super abundant attention. That's what give more earnest heed means. It actually means super abundant attention. That is such a better explanation than give more earnest heed. <laughs> no, you need to give super abundant attention to the truths you have heard because they didn't have Bibles. <laughs> the truths contained in the new covenant so that our hearts remain established in grace, even in the midst of great turmoil. Continuing verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. This is half of a sentence. I know it's half of a sentence, but I want to address it. For starters, the um, Old Covenant, according to the Jewish writings, was instituted and mediated by angels. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The Jewish writings tell us that. Therefore, the Jewish people believed that that was the case. Now, when I first read this sentence, I thought, no. <laughs> no, it, no, it didn't. <laughs> Not every transgression and disobedience actually received its just reward. And we know this because God was constantly sending prophets to Israel to warn them that judgment would eventually come <laughs> if they didn't change their minds, return to God, and listen to God. So God had great mercy upon them all of the time. And they very often did not actually receive what they earned, which was the judgment of physical death, unless they insisted <laughs> on continuing to refuse to listen to God. In that case, judgment was certain. The Old Covenant law did not provide for this mercy. And that's the point of this half of a sentence. <laughs> According to the law, God has every right <laughs> <laughs> to give every transgression and disobedience a just recompense of reward. But that wasn't God's heart. The law was supposed to show you how far you fell short and that you needed the mercy of God. That was always, even through the whole Old Covenant system, they were supposed to come to the end of themselves for salvation. That was always the point. That's why God kept having mercy on them. He always wanted them to live and have life. The law only ever found people guilty. That's what's wrong with the law. It's not our helper. <laughs> it always finds us falling short of perfection. It never finds us innocent. And I think the author's point is that if rejecting God's goodness and mercy under the old covenant eventually brought physical judgment of death, then what would be proper for neglecting the voice of God under the new covenant? Again, he's not trying to scare us. He's trying to make this comparison. If God's mercy under the old covenant was there, is God's mercy there under the new covenant? Absolutely. But if they deserve, rightfully deserve judgment, then would we rightfully deserve judgment for not listening to God? Yes, rightfully. Fortunately, we don't live under that. We're not under that law. We have to remember that we have an everlasting covenant, an everlasting righteousness, or we'll misinterpret what he's saying to these other people. 
Nothing we do can change our citizenship in heaven. Nothing, 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 nothing. But not listening to God can get you killed. That's the point. Because he's talking to them. If you don't listen to God, you're going to jump out of the frying pan and right into the fire. You're going to think you're going to be saving your life and you're going to be jumping right into death. Don't do it. <laughs> That's what he's trying to get to here. What was coming? They all knew judgment was coming. But it wasn't judgment of the whole world. It was judgment of the Jewish world and the Jewish people. It was all of that system was going to come under judgment. So, believe God, listen to his voice, listen to the new covenant, the new truths, this everlasting righteousness. Don't let this other stuff scare you. <laughs> the author knows that if his readers do not listen to him, then they will suffer the same physical fate as the unbelieving Jew. So the saved Jew and the unbelieving Jew have two different righteousness. This one is pure righteousness by Jesus. The unbelieving Jew has no righteousness. Okay? The unbelieving Jew, if he doesn't repent, is going to come under God's physical judgment. The righteous Jew, if he doesn't listen to God, <laughs> he's going to come under the same physical judgment that God doesn't want him to have. That God doesn't want him to have. God's provided an escape. That's what the author's trying to get them to see. You don't want to get what the Jews deserve. <laughs> you want what God has given you by his grace, the undeserved favor of God. Stay in the undeserved favor of God. So if they decided to go back into Judaism, their great salvation would not prevent them from suffering the same earthly fate as the unsaved Jew. So guess what, Hebrews? <laughs> don't be stupid. <laughs> don't go back to the old ways. There's no life there. Don't think that that's going to save your physical life. Instead, trust Jesus. Why? Because his salvation is a big salvation, and it includes safety and rescue and provision. Trust him. And then verse 3. For if every word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience, which actually means inattention, not listening. It doesn't actually mean disobedience. It means you're not listening. And it can also include the idea of mishearing. You know what? What did you say again, Jesus? <laughs> did I mishear you? Yes, Christians can often mishear what God is saying and misinterpret what God is saying. This is important because later on, the author's going to get into faith. And how does faith come? By hearing. And by hearing. By hearing what? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. So here you have the juxtaposition of not hearing. Those who refuse to hear will die. <laughs> Even if you're saved. Don't do that. <laughs> Verse 3, continuing. In light of that, how shall we, we who? Not we, us. We, them. How shall we back there right then escape? Escape what? <laughs> the coming physical earthly judgment of the old covenant. Christians read this and they go, oh, I'm going to lose my salvation. Oh, no, no, everlasting righteousness. 
everlasting righteousness. Even if you go over with the unbelievers, you'll probably die sooner. <laughs> but you're still a citizen of heaven because you have everlasting righteousness. This question is, so if we neglect what this huge, giant, great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. How can we escape? It's not us. <laughs> we are not the we. We are not looking for an escape. <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> the author is saying that they had heard the testimonies of eyewitnesses who heard, heard Jesus preach these things. They heard Jesus preach this so great salvation. They heard Jesus preach everlasting righteousness. They heard Jesus preach coming physical judgment on the old covenant system too. And God had confirmed those truths to them through various operations of the Holy Spirit. God loves to confirm his word. God loves to bear witness in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that what we hear, what we believe, is in fact the truth. He also will send various kinds of confirmation where he orchestrates things and puts things in your path. Those signs and wonders we see when God goes, see it's me, see it's me, see it's me. Everywhere you look, it's me. <laughs> hear me, hear me, hear me. <laughs> the word of God tells us to let every matter be established through the testimony of two or three witnesses. And our Father is faithful to do that for us so that we can live with peace in our hearts, even in the midst of the most difficult earthly turmoil. Now, we know that the author was talking specifically to those who were alive at that time. But what can readers today take away from these few verses? I believe the same truth presented in these verses still applies to us today in that, as believers, we too still need to give superabundant attention to the truths of the new covenant of God's grace. The more we hear of the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has actually accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, like in chapter 1 of Hebrews, the more our hearts will trust him. And the more we trust him, the more our faith will begin to manifest the different aspects of this so great salvation. But many believers today are doing the same kinds of things the same Hebrews were doing, or were at least thinking about doing, back then. Going back to the law-keeping as either a way of making sure that they're really saved, because there are those who say, well, if you're really saved, you won't smoke. If you're really saved, you don't swear. If you're really saved, I was really saved at 10. I did not look like a Christian. <laughs> I went through all of my teenagerhood living like a heathen, but I had everlasting righteousness and I didn't know it. So I didn't live like I had an everlasting righteousness. I didn't live according to my so great salvation because I had no knowledge of it. And when I found out, I was taught I could keep losing it. <laughs> if you smoked cigarette, you lost it. <laughs> and it's all a lie. We cannot, we cannot determine our salvation by our works or by our perfection. Let's face it, anybody here perfect? Well, we have to be perfect, then nobody is saved. Jesus says, no, you, I'll give you mine. I'll give you my perfection. I'll make you perfect. 
That way you don't have to worry about being perfect all the time. Learn to live in this so great salvation and perfection will start to show up in your life. Christians often want to keep the law for the purposes of trying to make God approve of them. But again, when we look to our works, whether they're good or not, if we look to our works, if we think we're doing it right, we're going to start judging people who are not doing it right. Not because we're mean, but because that's what we believe. If I'm keeping myself right by not smoking, and you say you're saved and you're smoking, then I'm going to determine you're not really saved. I read a lot of um, theological material. And one camp of believers believes, Reformed theology believes, that if you're really saved, you're going to be able to tell by the works. So this camp of believers, even though they believe that they're forever saved, they also believe they have to prove it by how they live their life. And that they don't actually know that they're actually completely saved until they get to heaven. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that doesn't give us peace. That doesn't give us rest. That's the same same old wrong gospel. Another gospel that, that Paul was talking about. When you take Jesus and try to add anything else to him, he is our salvation. Nothing is of us. Nothing. Unfortunately, the majority of believers are constantly trying to judge the validity of either their salvation or someone else's salvation, <laughs> which is really dumb, by how they live. And the truth is, we do not possess the ability to, to determine if someone is actually saved or not, based on their works. And it's because of the, of the belief that our works are the evidence of salvation that so many are frightened by these verses in Hebrews. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this. I have it in the ESV version this time. <laughs> Therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed, more superabundant attention to the things we have heard, lest happily we drift away from them. And they say, see, I can backslide. <laughs> I can drift away from Jesus. <laughs> And that's because they believe that, they buy into that, because they don't know they have an everlasting righteousness. And they think that's, that the security of their salvation is based on their own diligence and faithfulness. And when we try to evaluate our own diligence and faithfulness, if we're honest, we will find that we fall short of our Father's glorious perfection. <laughs> and guess what? So does everybody else. <laughs> That's why we have to know that our righteousness is an everlasting gift of our Father's grace. We cannot actually drift away from Christ because we are one with him. He automatically goes everywhere we go. <laughs> the only drifting that could ever actually take place is in our minds, in our imagination. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot of Christians who think that they are drifting back and forth in and to Jesus. It's crazy. <laughs> and then when these same people read verses 2 and 3, they can get really nervous. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, what they hear him saying is, God's going to slap you every time you mess up. See? It's right there. 
nope. <laughs> the law says that's right. The law says, yes, you should be smacked up alongside the head. But Jesus says, that's not how I want to treat you. I want to give you grace. I want to divinely empower you to live my kind of life. Verse 3, how shall we escape? Oh, no. How do we escape this if we neglect so great salvation? <laughs> but if we know that we know that all of our sins have already been judged in the body of Jesus and that our Father has already given us everlasting righteousness, which is an everlasting right standing with God, then these verses can't actually mean what we may have originally thought they meant. Now, can a new covenant believer neglect our so great salvation? Absolutely, they're doing it all the time. <laughs> For some immature believers in particular, their relationship with Jesus happens on Sunday morning, and that's because they haven't learned to really spend time with him and his word. And they haven't realized that they actually need him for everything in their life. This salvation is big, and most Christians around the world don't know how big it is. So it is being neglected. They're still working hard trying to become righteous. They're still working hard trying to become holy. They're neglecting what's already there that they could be living in and producing in their life, this great salvation. It's neglect because of ignorance. They simply just do not know what God did in them and for them and wants to do through them. They can, often like some of the Jewish believers addressed in Hebrews here, they don't want to wait and trust the Holy Spirit to lead them into what was promised. Instead, they want to provide their own rescue, their own provision, their own way which would have definitely gotten them back then killed. Because in AD 70, everything and everybody that was left there was destroyed. But what much of the church is still unaware of is the miraculous difference provided for the believers according to Jesus' word. Jesus told them, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, head for the mountains. And all those who believed the words of Jesus walked out of Jerusalem the same way the Old Testament Israelites walked out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites. God parted Jerusalem for the Christians that were there. But because it's not written in our Bibles, most Christians don't even know about it. All who believed Jesus was born to them and did what Jesus told them to do, walked out free. According to the Jewish historians, not one Christian died. All of Jerusalem, when they were done, it was just their ground. And all the surrounding properties as well. Everything was destroyed. But somehow, not one Christian managed to be caught in that. It seems like an almost impossible thing to believe, just like with the Old Testament Israelites. That God could take a whole nation of people and protect them in such a way as to deliver them from their enemies. But he did the exact same thing in AD 70 for the Christians. He took a whole nation of believers and said, you see this? When you see this happening, that's the sign. People know from history that the Roman general that had surrounded Jerusalem, for no good reason at all, stopped. Stopped attacking them. 
and went back where he belonged, I guess. <laughs> but he stopped for no apparent reason. And that's when the Christians said, hey, <laughs> I think this is the miraculous sign we were looking for. And they all escaped. All of them. Now what I like about this is that God knows how to keep those who are his from reaping a judgment that doesn't belong to them. When I look at America, <laughs> I'm thinking, this doesn't look so good, Jesus. <laughs> They're really messing stuff up. What are they doing to our country? Now, God is not judging America for its sins, and he never will, because all of the sins of humanity were on the body of Jesus. But if we're so stupid, we will reap stupid. But we don't have to participate. We have an everlasting righteousness. We have this so great salvation. God has given us safety and rescue and provision. Everything we need for life and godliness. We don't have to participate in a judgment that doesn't belong to us. Christians need to know that. <laughs> There's a lot of Christians who think God's going to send other countries to bomb us and all this other kind of stuff. That may or may not ever happen. But we don't have to reap somebody else's stupid. <laughs> what I hope you come away with today is the understanding that we as believers do not have to be afraid of what looks like a scary scripture. A scripture that seems to threaten us with the loss of salvation or with execution of judgment. I love the fact that our Father is so meticulous and so miraculous that the judgment that fell on Jerusalem never touched those who had received his everlasting righteousness. And this also shows us that apprehending the kind of life that our Father wants for us requires that we trust his word, especially his word to us, and we trust the indwelling Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth and into apprehending all the promises. They're not automatic. <laughs> I wish they were, but they're not automatic. They're automatically all ours. But if we want them to manifest, we have to believe. We have to choose, especially in the light of difficult situations. We have to choose to believe Jesus and his words so that we don't reap other people's stupid stuff. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, that when we understand that we're reading somebody else's mail, it's not addressed to us and it's not addressed to our time. We can understand that, yes, they had to be worried about that. They had to be worried about the judgment that was going to come on the old covenant system. They had to be sure in their own hearts that Jesus was enough for righteousness and that what he had did and done and completed was all that was ever needed for our everlasting righteousness. Father God, I thank you that you forever point us to faith, forever point us to trusting you and your word. Father God, I do believe that we as believers always need to give superabundant attention to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of our so great salvation. And Father God, I ask that you help in our understanding of just how big this salvation is, how great it is, what it all it contains, so that we can start manifesting what you have given us. We thank you, Father God, that the kingdom of God is in us and with us. 
and you, you want to display your glory in us and through us and to the whole world. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.